dig that. No, it's too much, too much. <clears throat> All right. Ah, oh, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Oh. <laughs> There's enough people. I, I, I was going to try to meet, I was going to try to say hi to everyone during the three minutes because, you know, I told Bob, I was like, I'm preaching Labor Day weekend um, to, to all six people that are going to come. So <laughs> we have more than six. So I'm proud of you guys. And, I, and clearly you guys are the faithful uh, because when Bob said sin and repentance, you didn't turn around and run to the door. <laughs> so we'll, it'll, yeah, for those of you that know me, you know I'm not, uh, I'm not all that fire and brimstoney, so uh, it should be a good message this morning. But welcome online if you're watching out there, our, our uh, friends in Tanzania, Pastor Malale and his church. Uh, shout out to my, my friends in, uh, in Italy, the Testas, if you guys are watching. Um, I want to say hi to you. Um, for all of those of you scattered around camping and watching via satellite, uh, you know, thanks for being here. All right, let's pray. We'll do, get into this. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the truth uh, of your word. And thank you, God, that it's just not as complex as we make it sometimes. So I pray um, just an open heart to listen to you this morning, that you guide us and you direct us um, and what you want us to hear. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, we are continuing this morning through Ephesians. Um, focusing on the last half of chapter 4. Paul here is talking about the new life that we have in Christ and contrasting it with the old life um, before Christ. There's a lot of ideas in this passage. It's like 15 verses. So rather than trying to deal with each one of them, as I was reading through it, I just really felt like the Holy Spirit said, here's how I want you to approach this. Um, So I'll stop to make some specific points about the more kind of well-known portions of this passage, but overall, we're going to talk about the general theme of what's going on here. So let me read the passage here. This is Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to, be put, on, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with everyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up others as it fits the occasion, that it, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, 
as God in Christ forgave you. So again, Paul is clearly reminding the church here of their old way of life and how different their life in Christ should look. A lot of specific instructions here, but all pointing in one direction. Paul begins by describing the lifestyle of the Gentiles, right? Uh, Does it catch anyone's attention that he's actually talking to what we would consider to be a Gentile church? (laughs) He's not talking to Jews. Uh, The word for Gentile here is actually the word ethnos, where we get our word ethnic, right? It's better kind of translated the nations, right? Meaning those nations that do not belong to God. Paul is making a distinction that we saw earlier in the letter, right? That the believers in Ephesus are no longer Gentiles because they've been brought into the kingdom and the people of God, right? They've been pulled out of the nations that do not know God to be part of the kingdom, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, um, <clears throat> says this. In their case, the Gentiles, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Right? This is why Paul says the Gentiles here are darkened in their understanding and ignorant This has resulted in a hardened heart and a calloused conscience. They're unable to see the light of the gospel. Right, and this is still the truth of those around us who do not know Jesus in our lives. Right, and hopefully this should remind us of what I spoke about a few weeks ago, that our hearts should break for the lost around us. That Paul said, even with tears, I tell you, many are enemies of the cross of Christ. That first song we sung, I was like, I love the way the Holy Spirit is. I don't talk to Tom about that stuff, but the Holy Spirit is like, I got this. You know, it's only by our testimony, right, in the lives of people around us, right, that that light can break through the darkness so that they can learn Christ, as Paul says here, right? So as Paul contrasts the way of living, that way of living with the Ephesian church, we see again this theme of maturity, right, that's been running through this entire letter. He's constantly using language like growing up or coming to the fullness or not being children. See, Paul's concern is not primarily with the salvation of the Ephesians. They've, they've accomplished that, right? But not to stop there, that they would live their new life with an eye toward maturing in, the, in, in God and in their faith and away from their previous way of life. So yes, we are actually talking about sin and repentance this morning. <laughs> so here's my first question. What is sin? Right, as soon as I use that word, again, a lot of us probably pucker up and think, wow, we're going there, huh? Okay, <clears throat> right? That word has a tremendous amount of just connotations, right, to the history of the church here. Um, but again, please don't tune out. Lean in. This is not fire and brimstone. See, Scripture uses two words for sin, depending on whether it's the Hebrew in the Old Testament or the Greek in the New. The Hebrew is the word chet, which means to go astray, like literally to wander off the path. The Greek is hamartia, which means missing the mark. Right? And those words are typically what we hear about sin, right? We, in the last several years, it's been a lot. Of, oh, yes, yeah, sin means missing the mark, right? But I think those words leave a little something to be desired on their own. 
See, is sin an action? Right? Revelation 20.12 says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Is sin a long list of do's and don'ts that we have to keep track of and constantly add and subtract to as times change? If we get the list right, can we keep ourselves in line and actually attain perfection here in life? Or is sin a state of being? Right? Ephesians 2.3 says, Among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, of mi- of our, of the body and the mind, and we were by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Is our sin nature to blame for our fallenness? If you were to sit in a room by yourself your whole life, would you still be sinful? What about this? Is a right action done with the wrong intention still sin? Paul says in Romans 2, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves. They show that the law is written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their conflicting thoughts accusing them or even excusing them. That verse would seem to say that sinners acting rightly are actually obeying God. But then he goes on to say, actually a few chapters later in Romans, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. For the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The word flesh here is the Greek word sarx. It's not our physical body. It's an expression of our sinful desires, right, as humanity. So what is sin? Right? If we're a people told to turn from sin, as Paul says, right, it'd be kind of helpful if we knew what we were turning from, right? So I want to suggest this morning that the root of all sin is actually one thing. Sin at its core is rebellion. See, we see this throughout Scripture, if we can, and if we can understand sin from this perspective, it can actually really simplify so many of the convoluted questions we sometimes find ourselves grappling with. Right, so what is rebellion? Simply put, rebellion is the rejection of authority and rule over our life. And it really doesn't matter if it's good or bad, right? We can rebel against good authority like God or we can rebel against bad authority like tyranny. Either way, it's rebellion, right? That said, rebellion against evil authority may very well be justified, right? Though rebellion against good authority usually isn't. Right, what was Satan's sin against God that ended up in his removal from heaven? Some would say it was pride, right? But that pride led him to rebellion. Then in the garden, the devil tempts Eve with rebellion. After the garden, humanity continued in its rebellion until God brought a flood to wipe the slate clean. After the flood, we see the Tower of Babel, yet another rebellion for which God confused the language of the earth and scattered the nations. Israel rebelled against God in the wilderness and it cost them a generation-long trek through the desert. In fact, God 
consistently uses the phrase a rebellious people to describe Israel through the prophets, right? Ezekiel 2.3. Then he said to me, son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. Right? I like the variation uh, used in Exodus where God continually calls them a stiff-necked people. Right? And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. And that kind of always conjures up an image like this for me. Just, <laughs> go! No. Um, <laughs> that's Jesus at the front and the Holy Spirit at the back and me in the middle. <laughs> See, rebellion essentially says, listen, I know better. I can do it without you. I don't need you and I can do it my way. I got this. Right? Rebellion is the defining characteristic of humanity after the fall. We entered into rebellion against the one who had rightful loving authority over our lives, and we have persisted in it ever since. In fact, this has been going around social media, maybe you've seen this, but this is a good example of rebellion. Drinking and driving here is viewed by some as downright undemocratic. It's kind of getting common this when a fella can't put in a hard day's work, put in 11, 12 hours a day, and then get in your truck and at least drink one or two beers. They're making it laws where you can't drink when you want to. You, can't, you have to wear a seatbelt when you're driving. And pretty soon we're going to be communist country. Yeah. Communist country. Seatbelts. Pretty soon we're going to be a communist country. I tell you what. Um, <laughs> Right, see, it doesn't matter what it is, right? Even if it's a life-saving law, we'll push back on it in rebellion if we can, right? And for those of you that took the accents to mean something, that was California, actually, in the, in the mid-'80s, right, when they finally decided to uh, enforce drunk driving laws that had been on their books since the 20s. So people were less than happy, <laughs> right? We want to do our own thing. So you're thinking, okay, great, that's a nice lesson. What does it matter that we understand that sin at its core is rebellion? How does that help us achieve the maturity that God is calling us to? To help answer that, let's look at what Scripture explains is the way out of rebellion. Right? So we've defined sin. Let's define repentance. Again, the Greek and Hebrew words here that we translate repentance, Hebrew shuvah, to return. Greek Matanoeo, to change one's mind, right? These are how we, tra- all those words when you see repent, right? That's how they, that's where they come from. That's not really hard to see, right? If sin is rebellion against authority, repentance is the opposite, a return to that authority. Like Paul said, the mind set on flesh is hostile toward God. So repentance is to change one's mind from hostility back to fellowship, Indeed, there are examples of people being called to repentance throughout Scripture, right? Not the least of which would be Jesus at his baptism, coming out of his baptism. And the first thing, and it says, from then on, he, he preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Right? Again, we hear that word repent, and we go, and I think we get this kind of image in our mind, right? That actually came from a blog post I found. The title was literally, Why Repent is More Than a Scary Word. Okay, that's, that's, that's inviting. Uh, right, yikes. So, you know, if people don't understand the grace of God, it can seem a lot like a scary word. 
Martin Luther, the man who effectively started the Protestant Reformation in 1517, was a monk for several years. This is what was said of Martin Luther. Of all the monks in the monastery, he became the most fastidious. He dedicated himself to the sacraments, fasting and penance. He even performed acts of self-punishment like surpassing sleep, enduring cold winter nights without a blanket, and in an attempt to atone for his sins, even whipping himself. If you've ever heard of the process of self-flagellation where people, you know, they, he, Martin Luther did that. Thankfully, right, later sometime he was studying Romans and he, and he came to understand the grace of God. And this is what actually launched him into saying, no, no, we got this all wrong. And Martin Luther himself said this, quote, here I felt as if I was entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. An entirely new side of the scriptures opened itself to me. Right, his understanding of that was what led him to say, no, 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 we, sola gratia, sola fide, by grace alone, through faith alone, we're saved. But, see, far from seeing repentance as some form of like self-castigation where we try to show God that we're sorry, right, we should see Jesus saying here, when he says, repent, return to me. Come back from your rebellion, for the kingdom of God is here and it can set you free. So then what is repentance? Is repentance a prayer? Right? Do we repent by saying, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me, I won't do it again? Right? Can you say enough Hail Marys to count as repentance? Is it an action? Is there a list of things to do that shows God that we've repented and turned around? If you slip up again, does that list start all over? Is repentance something that can be judged from the outside? Can I look at someone else and assess whether or not they have repented? Or perhaps is repentance a state of the heart? Is it a function of your relationship with God? Can an addict be in the state of repentance at the same time they're struggling to get free of an addiction? Can a Christian use the idea of repentance as an excuse to do what they want and just repeatedly repent and ask for forgiveness? Is that true repentance? How can I assess my own heart, right, to have confidence before God that I actually have repented, that I'm not grieving the Holy Spirit, as Paul says, as a Christian, is repentance a one-time thing? Or is it something I need to continually practice? See, this is why it's helpful to distill these ideas down the way we're going to do this morning. If we can clarify the way we understand sin and repentance, we can have a lot more grace for ourselves and for others. So to help answer those questions and focus these ideas, let's um, look at more scripture. That's what we do here. <laughs> So see if you can pick out the common theme of these passages I've given you, some hints. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Proverbs 21, 2, a person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs their heart. Hebrews 4, 12, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to even dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 
in Romans 2, on that day when God judges the secrets of mankind by Christ Jesus. See, for all the questions about works and faith that get us so twisted up, the most fundamental way to understand these questions is actually fairly simple, right? God is clear that he judges the motives of our heart. See, the key to knowing if you're in rebellion or repentance is to ask yourself this one question. Is my heart pointed toward God in this area of my life? See, but this isn't a matter of just direction, right? Like a wind vane pointing north and then one moment and then south the next. This is a question of movement, right? We move in the direction our hearts are pointed, right? Away from God or to God. We move in that direction. Maybe slowly, maybe quickly, but there's no stasis in the spiritual life. The longer our heart is pointed toward God, the closer we'll get to him, the better we'll know him. And the longer our heart is pointed away from him, the harder it gets to hear the voice of our shepherd calling us back. So this morning, which direction are you moving? Seems like a simple question, right? Hey, we're all in church on Labor Day weekend. (laughs) Doesn't that mean our hearts are pointed toward God? It's not that simple. See, I qualified that question of, right, is my heart pointed toward God in this area of my life? Because this is not an all or nothing concept, right? You can be very much in repentance in one area of your life and very much in rebellion in another. And this is what maturity means, right? To be constantly working with the Holy Spirit to bring every area of our hearts and lives into repentance and alignment under the perfect loving authority of Christ, Any area of our life, great or small, that isn't submitted to his authority is is an area that's most likely in rebellion, right? The best example of this uh, in Scripture is James 4.17, right? If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. You see the qualifier there, right? It's sin for them. This isn't a universal right or wrong. This is an issue of my heart, your heart, working with the Holy Spirit to do what I know is right, what you know is right in each and every area of our lives. See, the word translated renewed in verse 23 literally means to go up to a higher level or a state of completion, right? There's that maturity, And when Paul says in verse 24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God, that word likeness means to let God make what was not there before as only he can do. It's a beautiful thing, right? So we see the idea of maturity again and again, right, that grows up out of a heart pointed toward God and obedient to his authority. And to tie this into the rest of Ephesians, this obedience is rooted and established in love, right? like we talked about a few weeks ago in chapter three. And like Gabe talked about last week, that we will mature in the Lord measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. 
What love? What love is it rooted in? Well, first of all, the overwhelming love of Jesus that draws us in kindness to repentance. Right? Paul says that in Romans uh, 2. Uh, you show contempt for the riches of his mercy, forgetting that it is God's kindness that leads you to repentance. Second of all, it's the response of our hearts back to him in love to say, is there anything better than what you have for my life? So everything comes down to which direction you're facing and which direction you're moving. If your heart is pointed away from God in an area of your life, it doesn't matter if your actions appear good, they're not. And the opposite is equally true. Your actions can look to anyone watching like you're not seeking God, but if your heart is rooted in repentance, you will find grace in your growth. Right? Consider this idea. Two Christians. First person's life looks very put together. They're a good churchgoer. They go to Bible study. But every night when they get home from work, they reach for the bottle of whiskey. Right? They don't get drunk. They have a couple drinks. But as they reach for the bottle, this thought always runs through their head. This is the way I need to relax and unwind at the end of the day. Without good whiskey, I am not sure I could deal with my life right now. And when their spouse gently says, babe, would you spend some time praying with me about what's going on? Their response typically is, I just want to enjoy my whiskey and go to bed. Second person is an alcoholic, right? Their parents were alcoholics. They started drinking at a young age. And now in adulthood... Right? They've come to know Jesus and his salvation. But they're struggling to overcome a lifetime of addiction. They want desperately to be past their struggle. And they're making strides. They're doing the work. They're getting help. But it's a hard road, and they fail on a somewhat regular basis, more often than they want. But every night as they lay in bed, they say to themselves, Oh, God, have mercy on me. I want to be past this so badly. Help me to continue to fight for you and to honor your grace and salvation. Now, which one has a heart pointed toward repentance and which has a heart in rebellion? I'm not talking about a one-off occasion. I'm talking about patterns in our lives, directions that we're pointed and traveling and moving Right? There's nothing wrong with having a glass of whiskey or wine or beer. But a heart that says, I choose to seek my peace there instead of resting in God is a heart that very well may be pointed toward rebellion. See, God is our peace, is our rest, is the place we should go in times of stress. But if your heart goes somewhere else, anywhere else, alcohol, food, pornography, social media, then you probably have an area of your life that's in rebellion. And if you think that example is a stretch, um, well, I'm only trying in modern terms to echo the parable of Jesus in Luke 18. To some who were confident about their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, oh God, thank you that I am not like other men robbers, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. 
But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, said Jesus, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Two hearts pointed in opposite directions, but defying the way the world would have judged the situation. See, we talk about obedience, like we know what we expect of obedience, right? How many of us <laughs> with children would be okay if our children were just obedient in the big things? Right? If you ask them to clean the dishes and their response was something like, I don't need to do that. I already cleaned my room and I've been in my curfew all week, so I'm good. Would you be like, oh, okay, you're right. I forget that. I forget I said that, right? I doubt it, right? As parents, we look for our children to be obedient in all the little things too. Why do you think God, our, perfectly heaven, our perfect heavenly father, would, de- would deserve any less than that from us? The God of the universe suffered and died so that we could be free. And as Paul said to the Galatians, do not use your freedom as a cover-up for sin. Did he mean just big sins? See, God redeemed us into freedom. And if you understand the legal process of redemption in Jewish culture, you know that it means to rescue something or someone by buying them back at a price to buy someone out of slavery and redeem their life. And so we're told in 1 Corinthians, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. And that price was the very life of Jesus. Being redeemed means that we do not belong to ourselves in our freedom. See, Paul makes it very clear in Romans 6 that every one of us is a slave. Either to sin leading to death or a slave to righteousness leading to life. But we all serve some master, right? And of course, he was just echoing Jesus, right? Where Luke records Jesus saying not to get caught up in wealth and then says no one can serve two masters, right? The implication, you're gonna have one either way. But Jesus starts that same passage by saying this, Whoever is faithful with very little will also be faithful with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. See, Jesus himself is making the point that our big obediences start with all the little things, not the other way around. So in that vein, let's turn our focus to some of the specifics here of this passage and see how that plays out. Verse 26, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Has that verse ever been a head scratcher to anyone else? Like, you're like, why would he say be angry, right? But how many of us know that that's actually a quote from Psalm 4, right? David in Psalm 4, 4 to 5 says, be angry and do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. The word for angry here literally means to shake and tremble with anger. In fact, some of the translations actually translate it, tremble and do not sin. In context, right, David the psalmist is saying, the world will make you furious, but at the end of the day, know that God in his sovereignty can be trusted, right? In other words, submit yourself to God's authority 
and trust him even in your justified anger. Right? James echoes this even more clearly in James 1, 19 and 20. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Right? I'd put it like this. The spirit of God within you will rightly produce anger over the evil in this world. But that anger is an easy door to taking things into your own hands and giving the enemy a foothold. Maybe if you want to make sure you're acting righteously in your anger, then make sure every other aspect of your life is in line with Jesus first. And then slowly, gently wade into the ocean of anger, right? Until then, you're probably better off letting God handle it. I can't think of a more appropriate word for our time and culture right, than that. Um, Paul goes on to exhort the Ephesians to say, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up others. Right? So as we talk about first pointing our hearts toward God in all the little things, how many of us can say we get this one right, even a majority of the time? How often do we let things flow freely from our mouths, right, that bear no relation to the things Jesus would say? We like to think that if someone really challenged our faith, right, we would step up and trust. But if we can't stop ourselves from spitting venom at the first opportunity, how can we be faithful when it really counts? And that's just the speech part, right? Paul goes on to say, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate and forgive each other. Come on, man. <laughs> right? How are we honestly expected to attain to that kind of character? Because a heart shunning rebellion, pointed and moving toward God in repentance, under his loving authority, will grow up bit by bit in the fullness of maturity as we begin to be faithful in all the little things. Unattainable? Not at all. But totally contrary to the character of the world around us. So I want to wrap this all together by showing you that this is actually always, this has always been the only way that anyone has ever come to God, right? God did not change this pattern with the coming of Jesus. He did not do away with the sacrificial system that saved people in order to tell them that they now have a new standard, right? There's a unity to God's plan and purpose throughout history. And I bring this up in part because I've had this conversation numerous times over the past year or so. It usually starts with a question like, why did God change the way that people were saved after Jesus from the sacrificial system he set up in the Old Testament? Simple answer is, he didn't. There's only ever been one way to come to God and be saved, to move away from a heart of rebellion and to return to God in faith and obedience. Right, the author of Hebrews makes this abundantly clear in Hebrews 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. 
For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Pretty straightforward. Now, move on to Hebrews 11, right? What we call the hall of faith. Go read that chapter when you get home. It's amazing. You'll see what I mean. A list of all these people that operated in in trust and faith, right? Here's a snapshot. Abraham, long before the law, believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, right? Right standing before God, right? To be righteous is to have a legal right standing before God, right? We also call it being justified, right? We sang that in the first song this morning too. And where did we just hear that? That's exactly what Jesus just said of the tax collector. This man went home justified, right? Because of his heart. What was the big difference in the Old Testament between King Saul and King David? Right? Saul sinned against God and was removed from the throne, but David did far worse than Saul did. But David, though, was a man after God's own heart, as God himself described him. Right? See, when Saul failed, he continued in his rebellion, and when David failed, he fell on his face in repentance. Right? Go read Psalm 52, where David's famous lament after his failure with Bathsheba Right? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Restore your spirit to me. Take not your presence from me. Right? We see it was David's repentance and his heart pointed to God's authority that God celebrated. Right? The author of Hebrews just said it. These sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Right? When confronted with the law, people in the Old Testament had a choice to respond one of two ways. Right? They could just trust the sacrifices and the rituals with no heart involved and no real thought toward their actions in the periods between the rituals. Or they could turn their heart toward God, realizing no one was actually capable of keeping the law and they were sinful in need of salvation. They could let that understanding turn their heart to their need to trust the promises that God had spoken about who he is and his character to remember all he had done and submit to his loving authority and his promises with a heart of repentance. Right? In short, there was always a way to have a heart that was pointed toward God and salvation. Jesus' death at a specific moment in human history echoed both directions to pick up everyone, past, present, and future that turns away from their rebellion to trust him. There's no difference. There's only ever been one way to come to God. So as we close this morning, I want to give us a chance to respond to the Holy Spirit in our own hearts right now. I want you to take a minute and point your heart toward God and listen intently. Let your heart turn to him now and let him show you an area of your life where you need to return to him. Let the Holy Spirit gently and lovingly prompt you to repentance in an area of your life where you still operate in rebellion. 
Here's the thing. You will have a choice in that moment. And only you and God will know which way your heart is pointed. Now, to be clear, make sure you listen to how that voice is speaking to you. If what you hear doesn't make you want to return, that is not the voice of God. (laughs) Our God does not speak in condemnation and failure and shame. Right? That is the voice of the enemy trying to keep you from returning. Focus instead on that still small voice of hope, of encouragement, of love, and of grace. The voice that says, listen, it's a short distance back to me, and I will meet you there. Right? That's the voice of God calling you to return to him. So let's pray, and then we'll do that. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you for the beauty of your word, the beauty of your character. How amazingly free it is to live under your authority, to to be restored to who we are supposed to be in fellowship to you. God, forgive us as a church for so many years for turning these words into shame and condemnation, to rooting them there. I pray now, Holy Spirit, open the hearts of everyone in here. Pour your grace out. Show up. Silence the voice of the enemy and point us to you in ways that will only draw us closer to you and make things better. We love you in the name of Jesus. Stay with us this week as we go forward too. Amen. All right, we're gonna just play this for a second and... uh, you just play a little a little silent music or a little music. Just sit sit now for a minute and just stay with God. of that song say it's all about you it's all about you Jesus I'm coming back to a heart of worship I pray that the Lord said something to you and please know that as I stand up here I'm preaching to myself too just because I just because we stand me and Bob or Gabe stand up here doesn't mean we're any less prone to need to know the truths of these messages so we love you uh, Lord thank you if if that stirred something in your heart we'll have prayer team in the back right um, go back and pray, pray with someone. Go back and just say, hey, I, here's, here's where I'm at. Um, just pray with me to draw, you know, draw my heart toward God in these ways. Um, 
worship team, you can come up. We're going to do communion now. But before we do, I just want to, uh, real, real quick, specifically this morning, we have our healing prayer time directly after service. Um, so we're going to kind of ask for some special uh, arrangements this morning. Uh, if you're interested in receiving healing prayer or you want to be part of that, please come up and just kind of sit in the front rows here. Give us about 10 minutes. That'll allow everyone to kind of exit and the team to break down. Get our, our team can get organized, and then we'll uh, we'll have someone kind of with a clipboard that'll that'll arrange that as well. So come up front here. If you're not going to stay for healing prayer, we would just ask that uh, you know. The, the, there's plenty of space downstairs in the tent to fellowship if you just kind of quickly exit out so we can kind of create a good environment of, of, uh, of prayer there. That would be awesome. So, um, all right, thanks for that. We're going to go into communion. Um, if you are new to Discover or you don't know what's going on, which I think everyone in this room does, you know we have wine and bread up here. Uh, we have juice, gluten-free crackers, and self-serve cups in the back if you prefer that. Um, Thank you, guys. As you take communion today, remember the sacrifice and freedom um, that we've been led into. Have a great week.